it, it's day 14 and their story right now is oh i really thought i wanted to write about that but now i can't write any more about it because it's boring or i've said everything i need to say right they wouldn't have reached that conclusion for two years at the same rate right and so it really just accelerates this personal exploration process and that's what i think is so important and i'd love to just drill it into people's heads of like you will change as a person in 30 days if you do this hello and welcome to the lewis and kyle show an interview podcast where lewis and i profile high performers today we have on dickie bush dickie is a former princeton football player portfolio manager at a large institution and the founder of a new online community ship 30 for 30. Ship 30 for 30 is a writing challenge where you publish 30 short essays in 30 days. I'm actually about halfway through the January cohort of the Ship 30 for 30 challenge, which I was inspired to do because we're bringing Dickie on the podcast. We talk a lot more about what that challenge is for those of you who aren't familiar with it within the first couple of minutes of the conversation. So I'll leave that for then. In this conversation, our friend Dickie our new friend Dickie, we only met him during this conversation, went back and forth with us on a lot of our favorite topics. Dickie is a really interesting writer and thinker. So we treated this entire conversation as we do with our typical bonus round, except for the entirety of this chat. 60 minutes, fun back and forth based on Dickie's favorite articles, favorite books, best essays, best tweets. And it was an extremely fun conversation. I learned a lot from it. We have a lot on our notes for what we're saying at the end of this conversation for what we learned from it, which I take as good signal that we learn things, which is kind of our goal for the whole show. But that is enough about Dickie. I'm going to let him talk to you for the rest of this hour. So I'm going to switch to that conversation now. Enjoy. Dickie, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We are super excited to jam with you today, as you put it earlier. Hey, excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Tell us who is Dickie Bush? What have you been up to lately? For sure. So yeah, like you said, my name's Dickie Bush. My full-time job is as a hedge fund portfolio manager, where I like to say my my job to be done is to predict the global economy, which sounds a lot cooler than it ends up being. But outside of that, I like to write and share ideas online. I run an online writing community called Ship 30 for 30, where the goal is for every member to ship 30 atomic essays in 30 days. So spun that up in November and had a second cohort in December and the current one is running right now. You know, we've got a lot we want to talk to you about. I think that we all sort of run in similar intellectual circles, read the same stuff. So that I think we're, we're kind of just going to do like a, a, a bonus round as we like to call it throughout the entire interview. But, you know, my first question sort of aimed at that ship 30 for 30, like your, your online writing sort of uh, personality. And that is, why do you think that writing online is the highest personal leverage activity that you can do on a daily basis? It's a great question. And I think it's so true that writing something every day is the highest leverage habit in human history. So there, I think there's a few reasons for that. First, the, the leverage of the internet, I don't think people have fully come to grips with yet, where for every single year up until, I guess, 2000 or whenever the internet was really created, right? If I wanted to have a conversation or share an idea with someone, it was limited to that single conversation. But the internet has created something that I don't think we've fully come to grips with, which is infinite replication of media, right? So this conversation right now, if we were having it in ancient Rome, would have, you know, this, it would, it would go on and then it'd be gone forever. And if I was a, a king in ancient Rome and I wanted to 
blast my message to everyone, I would have to stand on the top of my, my castle and, and forecast to everyone. But now we have this conversation for an hour and forever it will live on and can be distributed to every single person with access to the internet, right? So what that means is if you aren't writing and sharing things on the internet, you're missing out on, I like to say, you can employ an army of robots, millions of them for free to take the way you see the world and distribute it to everyone and for free, right? And all you have to do is write. And so that's why I think writing online has such tremendous leverage. So go for it, Kyle. Well, it's just like writing specifically, you know, it has such like the written word is so powerful in its ability to change the world and what people think that I think it's both the misunderstanding of how powerful the internet is and then understanding how, how deeply powerful like things that are written are and how it can change the way that you think and view the world and how it can change yourself from writing it and then the people that read it. But Lewis, go ahead. Yes. I I have a follow-up question kind of on what you're talking about now. I had Kyle and I both listened to the interview you did with our friend Danny Miranda a few weeks back uh, where you talked about you committed to publish a weekly newsletter for a year and how, you know, you saw a lot of benefits from the weekly cadence, but recently a lot of your tweets have been saying an added nuance that writing online might be the highest leverage habits, but specifically daily publishing, the daily cadence is what makes it a specific level of leverage or what you need to do to access the highest form of leverage. What is it about the daily cadence, the daily publishing that increases your leverage or makes the activity that much more rewarding or amplified? So I guess we can take a step back and kind of talk about the, the origin of Ship 30 for 30, which goes back to this daily writing habit. So I started writing in January of 2020. I came into the year, like you said, and said, I'm gonna write a weekly newsletter every week for 52 weeks and we'll see what happens at the end. That was all I committed to. And during that time, I probably wrote 20 blog posts throughout where I, w- I was trying to write online and, and you know, everyone says, own your, own your platform, you have to write these blog posts on your own website. That's really the, you know, the most common knowledge and, and prescription. And in November of this year, so I'm 11 months in and I still didn't feel like I knew exactly what I wanted to write about. And so when I started to think about why, it was, I was missing feedback. And there's this principle that I learned from Jack Butcher called making noise and listening for signal. And the common you know, advice is you need to find your niche. You need to find your niche. And I still hadn't. And so I was frustrated. And I had so many of these ideas in my head that I felt were too short for blog posts, but too long for tweets. And I knew I needed to explore those ideas to find my niche. And the way I talk about finding your niche is you want to share as many ideas as you can, because it's only by increasing that cadence that you get signal and feedback, right? And so you get feedback from your audience, the people who are reading and listening to your stuff. And then you get feedback from yourself, which is the ideas that resonate with you that are really Mm -hmm. easy to write about. And so the overlap of those are what you want to double down on. Now you can do that on a weekly cadence, right? I can write a weekly blog post, see how it feels, see who responds to it if I share it. But 
upping that to a daily cadence and then also doing it on a platform that rewards prolific production, right? So Twitter really rewards you tweeting a lot. If you tweet every single day, you're going to, you're, they're going to distribute your ideas more, right? Because it just means you're more active on the platform. So it's really the combination of daily publishing with a platform-based solution that was kind of a breakthrough moment for me. So I went from publishing essays on my own blog, getting no feedback, you know, slaving over a hot keyboard on Sunday mornings just to write a blog post that get a hundred page views, right? Mm-hmm. Versus my tweets. And, and the best example of this is I think I wrote 20 blog posts, had 16,000 page views in all of 2020 on my, my personal website, but had over 10 million tweet impressions. Right. So you can just see that in the beginning, you want to both leverage these platforms and up your cadence. And that was the mistake I made and regret with, you know, the last nine months. So that's why I've been pushing daily publishing, daily publishing. If you're in your early journey, you need to do things daily because you don't even really know what you want to write about or what the market wants you to write about. So that's my, my spiel of why you should do things daily. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I actually, uh, a lot of the reason I had started my personal weekly newsletter uh, about nine weeks ago was I was listening to that interview you did where you talked about why you started yours and that kind of like pushed me on, over the edge to start mine. And one thing that I was exploring lately that you can definitely understand as a financial person is if you talk about compounding, right? Like another thing that people don't grasp about the scale of the internet is the power of compounding. And one of the most important factors in like the very basic compound interest formula like how do you increase the output? You can start with a bigger input, you can increase the percentage that you compound, or you can increase the iteration, uh, the rate of iteration. And the one, you obviously can't change your starting point and it's hard to change your conversion unless you like an expert copywriter have like the best tactics. So the most easily controlled factor for compounding is writing more frequently. So my question for you is kind of a fun one. Out of all of the writing you've done so far, whether the 20 blog posts, 52 newsletters, or I guess an uncountable number of tweets, what would you say so far after about a year, maybe a year plus a month has been the most exciting personal outcome or personal benefit you've seen from this like level of pro- being prolific and this level of public output? Mm, so a couple of good ones. I think the first is a personal one, just the clarity of thought, where I like to say, writing is thinking and there's just no better way to understand something than to write about it. So the ultimate forcing function is to have some kind of medium where anything you learn, you write about and share. And so for me, that has become my daily atomic essay where I, I say it's a coliseum for the daily battle that is writing and thinking. I get to wake up every morning and explore an idea for 45 minutes and just the way that changes how you see the world where, you know, I'm taking notes during this conversation of small ideas I could potentially write about. And so this goes back to the daily cadence, right? You just, you, the lens changes and everything says, Ooh, could I write about this? Could I explore it further? Right. And the compounding, like you said, of just your clear thinking from doing that consistently is, is a huge personal benefit. I think, Another personal benefit is the number of people I have met this year, 
right? I like to say that the internet has democratized access to friendship where for forever, right? Growing up, your friends were who you grew up with, lived on your street, you went to school with. And so if they didn't really like the same things you did, you were just kind of stuck. But the internet allows you to become a, a lighthouse for like-minded people by just throwing your ideas out into the world and mm. letting people see, you know, very quickly when someone stumbles upon my Twitter account, they know the things I'm interested in, the way I see the world, right? And it's it's a it's a filter for, oh, I'm interested in similar things. I bet we'd be friends. And so just the, the sheer number of relationships I've formed from tweeting and, and writing this year is incredible. So those are, and I guess the third one is starting a business and starting a, a side business of building this writing community where I came into the year, never written before online. And now I get to help others do that, right? That to me is very personally fulfilling, just given how important I think the habit is. So a couple things there. I really, really like the lighthouse for like-minded people uh, framework. I think that that, that is, that could be a, a whole essay by itself, but yeah, I don't think I came up with that. I think Matthew Kobach, Kobach came, came up with that, but it, mm -hmm. it's so true, right? You, you want to just stand out. And the only way to do that is be easy to find, right? Otherwise that's how you get the most out of the internet. Yeah, I think Matthew Kobach should probably say that he got it from somebody else, though. It's all everybody's just copying everybody, you know. But one question that I want to ask you, and it's sort of personal, is like, I know that you lost 100 pounds since college. And I know that that you were you were big on purpose for football. I was not big on purpose. I was just big. And I've lost 50 pounds twice now in my life. And there's a big difference in the way that you get treated on a day to day basis, based on how uh, people perceive you in the way that you look. And I, I kind of want to tie this into going to an Ivy League school and how when you go to an Ivy League school, you just have a different, you've got that attractive quality to you just based off your resume and, and like the different residual effects that, that are blessed upon you when you go to a school like that. So could you tell us a little bit about like how you think those two things are connected and what going to Princeton has done for your career? Hmm. So I guess on the, I'll tell you what, life is easier at 180 pounds than 280 pounds. And from a, a health, a comfort, a, you know, the way people treat you, the way people interact with you. It, I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty simple game, right? And so I think on a previous podcast episode I did, someone asked me, you know, how quickly did you something I'd like to see is that when my football career ended, I weighed 280 and, and said, I'm either going to 180 or 380. There, there was no, there was a slippery slope up if, if I didn't kind of get things in check and there was a, a relatively easy path down. And he said, how'd you make that choice to, to go down? I said, that was one of the easiest choices I've ever made. <laughs> like you can just see how life would be harder at, you know, 380. So yeah, I mean, that one's relatively simple, but on the Ivy league side, it's, it's interesting because I've only worked one job. I'm 24, two years out of college. And I have, I interned at the company I worked for. I interned the second summer there and I worked for the same group that I interned with and my boss went to Princeton. And so the connection was, was formed through, you know, my education. So I've never really experienced like 
introducing myself as a Princeton grad in with, with the goal of like finding a new job kind of thing. Right. So I really don't have the, a great answer for that other than it definitely helped me get this job. If, if that makes sense. I want to backtrack just one second. Cause this is a question I really wanted to ask you that was really related to the atomic essay stuff. So you had in the first cohort, I don't totally know the number in the cohort I'm participating in right now. There's over a hundred of us in the Slack. Do you have a, uh, cause we've talked a lot about your production side of things, the ideas you've put out into the world, but I want to ask you about the consumption side of things. If there's been a atomic essay or set of atomic essays from a student, cause I know you tweet a lot that reading the essays of your participants is like the most rewarding part of the whole activity that has really kind of created a dramatic shift in you or a dramatic change of mind or just exposed you to something completely new. If there's just an essay that a student or member of the 30 for 30 program wrote that you're like, wow, uh, that really kind of changed one idea I had in my head. Yeah. One of them, you know, he wrote me this personal, personal message and it, it struck a, a serious chord in me. And the story, you know, his, one of the members of ship 30, I think he lost his father in the last six months and has been just, you know, beaten up over it and struggled with it and just kind of on Twitter and really on the consumption side and not putting himself out there, et cetera. And said, he took a whim. He's been re reading my newsletter for a while, you know, like the ideas I shared and said, you know, he wanted to just get involved with it. And he wrote this one, the title of the essay is love is not a single player game. And the, the TLDR of it, he, he says, there's an idea that life is a single player game. It begins the moment we're born kicking, crying and breathing. I say, there's a bit more to it. There's a next layer game that rides on top of this protocol of life love love in so many forms is not a single player game it's humanity's application it's buggy but it works it's a massive multiplayer role-playing game and it's been running for eons and then at the end he says life is a single player game it has an end love is not a single player game it goes on forever and he talks about his experience with his dad and you know just the he says the first level is a playing field as a child another link in a long chain of earlier people back to the beginning. Just, you know, these, these powerful essays that people write on a personal basis from something that I started as a forcing function for me to write more is what I find so cool, right? It, it's like the people participating, it turns into just a, a journey of self-exploration, right? 30 days of writing, you really learn a lot about yourself and the world and the way you see the world by writing every day for 30 days. And so that I'm having some kind of influence on people finding themselves and finding their voice, I find super cool. So tracking and watching these, you know, there were, there's one right now, I can't remember their name, but you, they're so clearly like hitting a stride of something they really like writing about. And a lot of them are going viral and they're hit after hit after hit. And so that's the coolest part of, of the whole program for me. Well, I always love those questions that kind of are, I know there's going to be an answer in there. So which one you chose to share? Uh, I think that was a great one and appreciate that. Kyle, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we interviewed Taylor Pearson on this podcast. Um, I think he was four or five episodes back. And we talked to him about his butterfly effect and how uh, he wrote this book called The End of Jobs. And it has 
you know, affected so many people that one of the people that we had interviewed previously had said that, um, you know, he started his podcast and his business because of this book. And that guy who's two degrees of separation away from Taylor, who just, he has people coming up to him and saying that, you know, this guy's podcast and business changed their life. So it's like, just an unfathomable number of people's lives have been changed by this book. Right. And I think that ship 30 for 30, you know, it's hundreds of people writing every day for 30 days. And each one of those people has a group of people reading that essay, changing them, but also the person writing it and how their, their thoughts and the way they see the world and the way they, you know, have this new niche and new thing that they care about. It's just really incalculable what kind of effects a, a group of people that are exploring new ideas every day for 30 days and publishing it can have in the world. Yeah. And what I've been describing Chip 30 as is almost an angel investment seed fund for a lot of future writers, right? So you can see how if a good handful of them have success and say they become New York Times bestsellers, right? They're going to trace their their writing habit all the way back to ship 30 for 30. So it's almost like this program buys equity in a ton of writers at a very early stage, right? And says, wow, you're, if you're able to trace back and we really start to churn out some, some prolific writers, it, it just, it's going to be so cool to look back on the alumni network that comes out of people who started in ship 30 for 30. I think that's one of the coolest draws to, to content creation. And I mean, this even goes back to the first question we'd asked you today about kind of some of the things about creating content on the internet and how your ideas just get spread so widely. And then the part you didn't bring up that I think is equally powerful is that when someone changes, if you're one of the very first influencers, to use the term influencer generally, to kind of push a person on a path that leads them to like their higher fulfilled version, so like, if you're the person that inspires me to finally write online, and then all of a sudden, just my life changes dramatically for the better, because writing online leads to the business that I start, which leads to making money, which leads to getting married. And then I'm like, Dickie, put me in motion. Like when that happens, people associate a lot of their success with you. And I think that's true for, you know, a lot of these kind of Titan entrepreneurs like Seth Godin, for example, or Tim Ferriss, they wrote a lot, their mainstream bestsellers are the first introduction to a lot of these huge ideas for a lot of people. And I wanted to ask you, cause I think we share a lot of common influencers and common thought leaders that probably gave us the first nudge on our, to be on kind of the path that led us all to intersecting uh, in this moment. But who would you identify as kind of one of those first online or authors that kind of nudged you to see the world in this way and take the side project internet path yeah. and kind of be where you're at now? I, I, there's so many that have influenced the way I think. And it's so cool. This goes back to the internet, right? It, it's like, you can just, you can assemble this, this group of mentors who don't know you at all, but have influenced your life in a big way. So I would, I'd say the start would be James Clear just because of the book Atomic Habits. And I read that 18 months ago, and I probably gifted it 20 times to people now. I think it is a fundamental book. And I don't describe it as a book on habits. I describe it as a book on getting you to do this things you say you're going to do. Because that's at the end of the day, everyone knows what they should be doing on any given day to do things. But most people just don't do those things, right? It's very simple first principles. It's like, if you 
execute, anyone can make a plan that if you execute perfectly, it's going to take you somewhere, right? So this is the kind of book that says, how do you do what you say you're going to do? And so that had a, a huge impact on me and just the way that I've operated since reading that book is, is kind of zero to one. And it goes back to, I had to change so many habits after stopping playing football. It was almost like I had to rewrite my life's operating system because my entire life I was training for one thing to be as big and as strong as possible. Right. So it was like a full stop and reversal of, of the way I did things outside of James clear. I've listened to every episode of the Tim Ferriss show, which I think is, I wish I could, I, I almost want to start over and do every one of them again, because they're just, it's just incredible information. And some of the most incredible people, you just get a deep dive into everything that they do differently. Right. And so sure there's some survivorship bias to a lot of it, but for that resource to be free is, is still just crazy to me. Right. The number of things you could learn. If you said, I'm going to listen to one of these a day for the next year, you're going to walk away at the end of that year, a much better person. So those two guys have had a huge impact on me. I think James Clear has been such a huge answer lately. I'll, I'll share a quick story real quick. So I had met this kid for coffee yesterday at our school uh, and our school gives students the options to do a self-designed major. And he decided to do a major in happiness because kind of like an interesting backstory, but fast forward his senior year. Now he's teaching a class on happiness and on habits and the textbook for that class is atomic habits. So it's like a one credit, just honors kind of elective where he has students, like you said, anyone can say what they need to do to become the person they want to become or achieve the thing they want to achieve, but they need a framework for how does human psychology work and how does behavior change actually work so that on your worst days, you still adhere to your plan. And so he's actually presenting that book uh, as a resource to students. And like, that's kind of one legitimate or I'd say like institutionalized way that those ideas are being applied as well. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what votes are you placing for your your identity in the future right now? Like, Can you I know explain that, doing... Kyle, for people who like who haven't read the book, like what that means? Yeah, so basically James Clear says that every action that you take is a vote for the identity that you want to see in yourself and that you want to be. So like going running is a vote toward being a runner. And uh, instead of saying, I want to be, or I want to go run, I want to run outside, you are becoming a runner. And that's a big distinction and, and difference. So well, I guess, what are you currently casting votes for? Like, I know riding is one, obviously, jump roping, being fit, but what are some other ones that you're excited about? Yeah, so definitely the first one, riding. I want to be a rider, so I ride every day. I think the health and fitness is I'm someone who prioritizes their health. And so it's the foundation of everything I do is my, my physical health, because look, I, I think that that needs to be the base of your pyramid. So that means I wake up and do things that compound my health before I do anything else. Right. So those are how I, I cast votes there. I think another one is I want to be an intentional person. And so something I'm trying to do is stepping back and asking why I'm doing things more often. And so to be a more intentional person means asking why and doing things with a structured reason. I think if you can't at any moment pause what you're doing and say, why am I doing this? You, you 
can kind of get caught up in that. That's really how you stumble down a, a worse path. Whereas if you're consistently asking why and having a good, clear answer, your results will be more fulfilling. So that's something I'm working on because it's hard, right? So many of the things that I do often, you know, might've just ended up on my to-do list on a recurring fashion a couple months ago. And I've stopped asking why I'm still doing that. And it sometimes means killing your momentum on something that you think is good, but you don't really have that clear of a why uh, to continue doing it. So that that's one I'm, I'm working on. Mm, I like that a lot. So you, so you said that you, you wake up and you get to cast votes in the direction of your, your physical health. And I think that that's really important. We usually don't ask about morning routines, but I think that you're probably someone who has a very intentional set routine. So could you walk us through that, that morning that you have and sort of like the, the, um, the nature of it? I, I was wanting to say like the sacred nature of it, but just what is it and what do you do? Yeah, I think sacred would be right. And I, mm. so we can link to it in the show notes, but I, I wrote a thread on my morning routine, which is one of my most popular ones. And I would say it definitely starts the night before where I try to get in bed. I, I try to be reading for the last 45 minutes of, of every night without any kind of screen time, right? I read on a Kindle paper white. So I guess that's a screen, but there's no light to it. So if I'm doing everything right, I'm getting in bed at nine o'clock and I wake up at 445, five o'clock. It's my ideal within, you know, the first 90 minutes of my day, I try to have a good chunk of things done. And that, so I wake up, I, I hydrate, whatever, brush my teeth, all that stuff. And then I'll do about five to 10 minutes of mobility. So really trying to get my body feeling good, foam rolling, anything kind of taking care of it at, at that point. From there, I hydrate, get as hydrated as I can. And this has really only been in the last since I started writing every day and publishing, building that into my morning routine. So after I hydrate, I go for a 30 minute walk without my phone. And I carry a little voice recorder with me in case a, an idea comes out of nowhere. But so I guess before the walk, I'll do like some light exercise, not my full workout of the day, but just try to get my heart rate going a little bit. Um, and then I, so I go out for that 30 minute walk and 5.30 a.m. in the dark, you know, suburban neighborhood that I'm currently living in, it's just so peaceful and so calm that it's very fun to do. It's something I look forward to. And it's also a way that to start the day without any kind of, I, I know that if I wake up tired, all I have to do in that first hour is walk and so I'm probably going to feel a little bit more energized after that anyway. So it's a, it's a way of like, oh, I can get out of bed even if I'm tired today because all I'm going to do is walking outside, right? So mm -hmm. it's not, I used to work out like 30 minutes after waking up and that would just be, that that's a recipe for disaster in the long run. So during that walk, I, I just try to be mindful as possible. Think about sometimes either things I'm working on or the idea I want to write about that day. And then I come back in. I'll meditate for, I've been doing heart rate variability training. Mm. So I've struggled to meditate consistently because I don't, I'm just so outcome oriented that I need almost some more objective measure than like, oh, I feel more present in the moment or whatever. 
And so I'm, I'm studying improving HRV. I've been wearing a whoop band, trying to get my HRV up. So there's just some, some different techniques and it gives me more like context of why I'm doing it. You switched from the, the, the Garmin. You said no, you, still, you, you, you I, aren't ever going to switch. I, I, it's funny. I still wear the, I got the Garmin on one wrist and my whoop on the other. Cause I've been wearing that Garmin for, uh, for four years and it's got all my stuff in it. And the whoop doesn't track steps. And I still do like knowing how many steps I hit. But, uh, so from there, I usually I'll sit down and do my, my 30 minutes of writing. And I have gotten to a point where I can write my atomic essays in, in 30 minutes with about 10 minutes of, of brain dumping and then 20 minutes of editing. And so in that first 90 minutes of the day, I've mobilized, I'm caffeinated, I'm hydrated. I've produced and published something. I've exercised and like, good luck the rest of the day, right? It's just an, you know, I wrote an essay on this the other day. It's just an unstoppable feeling of momentum for it to be 6.30 a.m. and you have something published and you've done all that. It just, to me, I love that first 90 minutes of the day. And so I I treat it as as very sacred. I loved uh, hearing you walk us through that. You sound like you've put a lot of intentional design into it and- uh, this is another thing I kind of picked up from your interview with Danny is some of the things you did in that routine as well as you like measure your alertness. And that is probably what led you to the awareness that working out in the morning was not good for your overall alertness. And like you've tweaked it and it sounds like this is a routine that might really stick for a while to come. Yeah. So if you haven't heard that episode, part of my morning routine is just riding on a scale of one to five, what my alertness is when I woke up. And so the goal is to get that to trend higher, right? So you can start to look if what get what gets measured gets managed, right? So if my goal, I think the goal of anyone should be to wake up and be alert, right? That is like the quality of, of good quality sleep is you wake up and you're ready to go versus waking up and being in a slog. So that's kind of what I optimize for. And that means waking up with, you know, this is getting super tactical, but I don't use an alarm. I have a dawn simulator which just brightens up my whole room. Instead of waking up to a shrieking alarm, I wake up kind of naturally to quote unquote the sunlight. But given I I like to wake up earlier, I use this. But no, like I never wake up to a shrieking alarm, which means half the battle because most of those horrible warnings come from that dreaded iPhone alarm banging in your ear when when you want to be sleeping for a longer time. So I think Kyle, that should be one of our first goal sponsors for the podcast. We should reach out to a sunrise alarm company. I'm big on the sunrise alarm too. So that could be, that could be one. our first, our first DM. Hey, uh, Hey, sunrise alarms. In our recent episode, we just went all in on sunrise alarms. Do you want to sponsor the show? Thanks. It's funny wow. you say that because on my thread, I actually put my Amazon affiliate link for the Dawn simulator that I recommended and like six or seven people got it, bought it. And so that was <laughs> There you go. There's some evidence. There you go. (laughs) There we go. And throw the word passive income here so we can throw it in the tags and get all the search traffic for uh, people searching for passive income podcasts. Perfect. Uh, So I have a question about the first step of that routine, which is the night before uh, reading. This is a very specific question. I like to ask people who have read books that I've tried to read, but I haven't been successful at what their big takeaways were from that book. 
Uh, so if you're familiar with Nielsen, he, he is not the Wyasson's co-host. I asked him about the sovereign individual because I tried to read that book and I wasn't successful. And he's like really well versed on it because of their podcast. So I was looking through your book notes on your website before this podcast, and you've not just read, but you took notes on every letter from Seneca's letter from a Stoic and you gave it a 10 out of 10. So my question is, what was your biggest life change from Seneca's book, whether that's a mindset, a habit or something else entirely? You know, here, let me pull up my notes real quick, just so I have, we're looking at the same thing because it's some, I just need to be cued on it almost to to talk about it. I say for me, I think the reason partly that I haven't successfully read it kind of comes back to the atomic habits idea. The copy I bought is in the form factor of like an academic textbook. Like it's humongous. I'm never going to sit in a chair and read it. And there's just too much friction to opening the book that that's why I haven't. So maybe if I bought a, uh, atom- a an Atomic Habits, like pleasant to use, low friction copy of Seneca or put it on my Kindle paperweight, I would be more inclined to actually read it. And I will say in your defense, the Kindle is not a screen. It is a display. There's like Cal Newport ah. like geeked out on it on an episode of his podcast where he like explains how Amazon literally invented this display technology where it's not actually pixels. Like they just change it. So like the, the screen is static. They just change what it is. It's technically completely different. So Kindle's not screen time. That doesn't sound burnt. true. It's Kindle's not screen time. It's a thing. Mm. Like the way the Kindle is, it's they a fresh write an set. Essay about it being about it being screen time. <laughs> it's not. It's not blue light. It's not any of that. Assuming it's like one of the Kindle Kindles, not like the Kindle Fire. Right. Right. Okay, Lewis. Okay. <laughs> so Seneca's book was the second of the stoic texts that I read. And I would say meditations by Marcus Aurelius had a bigger impact on me, just given how it's nature of just the way it was written is like a personal journal. And for someone, the most powerful man in the world to be thinking the way he did, I just found so cool. And Seneca is more there. There's some funny parts, right? He, it just the, the structure of it, is he's writing letters to, you know, um, Lucilius, I believe it is. And so, but my biggest takeaways from that were more on being content with the current situation. And I, I like to say that any kind of long-term sustainable change has to start from a place of acceptance that whatever, whatever you currently are experiencing, you need to be okay that it could go on that way forever. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be content and live with it that way forever. But at the same time, I think, you know, as someone who's, who's gone through behavior change and habit change, it's, it can't happen from a place of beating yourself up, right? It can't happen from any, you're just going to form a, a bad relationship with yourself in the long run. So everything kind of needs to start with I'm totally fine if nothing changes because X, Y, Z, but I want to change this for ABC, right? So I think mm. his whole thing on, you know, one of my favorite quotes is set aside now and then several days during which you'll be content with the plainest of food and very little of it and with rough coarse clothing and ask yourself, is this what I so feared, right? So for if, if you're ambitious and, and looking to, amass more wealth or you're looking for, for this, it's, you need to kind of think a little bit deeper about why you want that. And if it's 
because you're so dissatisfied with what you currently have, it's going to be hard, right? You need to kind of operate from a place of acceptance. And that's one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, that one's straight out of Tim Ferriss's playbook. I've heard that one before. I really like it. It's like the fear setting idea is, is the whole the whole thing there. It's like how as bad as you can possibly imagine, like it's really not that bad. You can be happy in those scenarios and in and, and, and those. And it really comes down to a choice, you know, whether or not you choose to to be happy in those moments. It's like, Kyle, that the summer you worked that job circuit of just dirty jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. like literally like you're moving furniture and like doing how it was you want to yeah i mean it's like kind of the same thing right like you spent three months which is a fairly considerable amount of time doing essentially manual labor to like learn the ins and outs of like every component of real estate but i don't like i didn't feel like i was hopping on the podcast with someone who wasn't happy you know yeah no no no, no. it's like um right and, and that's the big differentiator that i found between different maintenance people that I worked with and, and like, you know, it was was four different properties or five different properties. So it was like a lot of people. And the main thing is their attitude and whether or not like they perceive themselves as happy and the ones that don't, it's just like the hours pass by in slow motion. It's, it's like hugely important to, to accept where you're at and, and, be okay if nothing changes like you're saying absolutely i have another question for you so seneca was writing to lasilius and a popular piece of advice on the internet and kind of like you said there's the standard template of advice for people writing online it's own your domain own your place on the internet and another one is to have a specific target avatar a person that you're writing for is there a specific person that you're writing for or are you writing to clarify your own thoughts like do you have kind of that person you're like, it's an 18 year old ambitious kid, or it's a woman who, who goes to soul cycle. That was the avatar from our last podcast episode I was editing today. So that's why she comes to mind, but I'm assuming you're not writing for the woman at soul cycle, but is there a specific person that you're writing for? Or are you doing it more of, of that kind of Marcus Aurelius productive writing helps me for my own thinking? I think it's a mix of the two where by writing to clarify my own thoughts, I end up writing to a personal avatar that is similar to me, right? So it it goes back to that attracting like-minded people, right? My target audience, quote unquote audience when I'm writing is people who are interested in the same things as me and just kind of building kind of a, a thought leadership in for that group of people, right? So for me, I'm interested in personal improvement and leveraging the internet. And, you know, my, my core overarching principle for what I like to write about is growth. And so what that allows me to do is this goes back to the finding your niche, right? In November of this year, I took a step back and said, you know, I'm half the time I'm writing about health and wellness or relationships and the other half it's financial markets or startups or, uh, venture investing, right? And I said, for anyone who's looking from the outside, it's like, this guy doesn't know what he wants to write about. And to be fair, that was true. So I said, I heard this quote from Naval said it, but it's from Richard Feynman and, and it's nature uses only the longest threads to weave her tapestry. And so I took a step back and said, what are the kind of long threads that 
weave through all my interests and it was growth, right? So it allowed me seeing, I was very fascinated with the improvement of people, businesses, and systems. And that let me be just as interested in prolific sports coaches as I was in emerging market economies as I was in habits and behavior change, right? Because they're all at their, the highest first principles, systems in pursuit of improvement, right? And so that's kind of what I've been writing more and more about. Writing, I think, is the ultimate tool of growth, right? So that is kind of how I transitioned in from growth as a whole to saying, you know, what is the lever that every single person can pull to maximize their growth? And that's writing, and so that is things have weaved into that where I eventually don't know if it, everything that I share and, and do is going to be writing focused, right? I think writing is just a super powerful tool that kind of gets at the heart of what I'm interested in, which is improvement and growth. I think, oh, I'm going to, I jumped in before I unmuted myself. I think one of the threads of that answer and a lot of the benefits of the program that you structured with 30 for 30 is you kind of are almost framing that as being hard on yourself for, you know, who's this guy put out 40 newsletters. It's November. He's been writing for a year. He doesn't know what he's talking about yet. And I think that's kind of another misconception is starting out expecting to know what you're writing about versus it's only at the end of after writing 30 days and after writing 40 newsletters that you can actually expect to know what it is you like to write about. You can't know having not written what you're going to be able to successfully write 50 more pieces about until you actually start doing it. And I think that's kind of an interesting thread as well. That just kind of connects to, to all of the things that you're bringing up there. Right. And, and with ship 30, it's funny because I talked to so many people who it, it's day 14 and their story right now is, Oh, I really thought I wanted to write about that, but now I can't write any more about it because it's boring or I've said everything I need to say, right. They wouldn't have reached that conclusion for two years at the same mm-hmm. rate. Right. And so it really just accelerates this personal exploration process. And that's what I think is so important. And I'd love to just drill it into people's heads of like, you will change as a person in 30 days. If you do this, right, you will see the world differently. You will find out you've never done that kind of self exploration that comes from, from writing and struggling for 30 days like this. Right. So I think there's a thousand benefits to doing it, but the personal exploration is huge too. I think we've almost even observed a lot of that in starting this podcast where, you know, we build, build it from the start is we're just going to learn about entrepreneurship. So it's like any person that's founded a company, especially a lot of tech companies were like, come on the show, we're going to hear your story. And then it was like six tech founders back to back to back that are like, there's this problem. I solved it. Then my friends were like, I have that same problem. Can I use your software? And then their friends were like, and then we sold the company. I'm like, okay, wow, maybe it's, maybe we've exhausted that. So it's kind of the same principle of like lean entrepreneurship, right? Like fail fast, fail early. It's write fast, write early, exhaust yourself of the topics. And I've had definitely the same experience in uh, Ship 30 for 30. You had this notion document that's like, what are the three words that kind of want to overarching talk about what you want to talk about? And you have us fill that out on day zero. So we have some direction as to what to do. And I just put like some very general things like productivity, minimalism, and like achievement. And I wrote like one essay about each of those. And I'm like, I really covered a lot of what I wanted to say in those three essays. Uh, and so now I'm kind of exploring a lot of uh, different topics as well. Yeah, that, that's so cool to hear. And it's a, it's a self-exploration adventure, right? And you'll emerge from 30 days later with, with a clear way of thinking. So I've got a question for you, Dickie. 
you know, you've built this really incredible sort of world for yourself in 2020. And 2020 was a year of the pandemic with being, it sort of lent itself to you being able to do all these things like a perfect morning routine because there's nothing else to do. Like uh, your parents, you said were um, sort of in a risk category. So you're going to, you're going to be at home way more than you would any other time ever. So my question is like when the world goes back to normal and there's bars to go to and women to meet, like how, how are you going to, how willing are you going to be to let some of these like perfect routines go? That I think is the $64,000 question. And one I'm going to have to spend an uncomfortable amount of time on because you're, you're right. Like the, I've built a, a system that allows me to work all day on a Saturday and Sunday because there's nothing else to do. Right. So it's going to take some, some prioritization for sure. And the way you put it of, you know, I, it's five 30 on a Saturday and my, my plans for the night are cooking dinner and then cuddling up with a book. I don't know how much longer I'm going to have that time. And, but I will say, I don't know if the world goes back to quote unquote normal. It's, I think you've given a lot of people a taste of freedom during this time. And that's a Pandora's box. You're going to be very hard pressed to take back. But no, I mean, I could spend an hour, I could spend 10 hours on how I think behaviors will change on the back of this. And what I like to say is everything that has changed that used to suck that no longer sucks is going to stay. And everything that was really fun and we've missed out on, we're going to go back to doing, right? So Mm -hmm. in 2022, we're going to crowd ourselves into packed bars and sporting events, but we're also probably going to work from home a lot, right? So the, if it's going to, the good things are going to stay around. The bad things are going to come go away. So I don't think it's going to be everything, a wholesale reversal, but no, that that's a question that I'm putting off answering because I don't want to have to face what I'm going to have to think about. Yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, you're not the only one that's facing that question, but that, that plays well into sort of one big question I wanted to ask you, which is like, I'm, I'm a finance major at Alabama and I've got pretty, uh, when, whenever someone starts to talk about risk and the probabilities of, of, of a return and like the most likely or least likely, it's just like, to me, I hear that I hear BS because no one knows what the future is going to look like. No one has like you can have you can look at what the, what's happened in the past but in every uh stock analyst says you know past performance isn't a isn't a predictor of the future and that's just true so as a you know your job being a portfolio manager like how do you feel about that you, you say you have to predict your, your your job is to predict the future but you know in my opinion the future is unpredictable so here, here's how I like to summarize success in, in finance or investing, where no one knows what the future is going to hold, but investors have a consensus on what they think will hold, right? So mm-hmm. no one knows what's going to happen, but you do know what everyone else thinks is going to happen, which bakes itself into the price of anything that you're investing in. Right. Inherent in the price of anything is the current consensus of that thing. And so success as an investor 
isn't about predicting the future. It's about being a professional observer of consensus mm. and questioning how that is going to change. Money is made very simply in finance. It is you come to an opinion that is different than the consensus. You position for that position to do well when consensus moves towards that position. And then it actually has to happen, right? And so that's what's so difficult is the wisdom of the crowd is usually correct or relatively correct. And so making money is very hard. You have to think and see, like if you read everything that everyone else is reading and you look at everything that everyone else is looking at, you're going to arrive at the same conclusion, which is already in the price, right? So it's a, that's what I love about investing is you, the ones who think clear and come to better conclusions relative to everyone else are the ones who reap all the rewards, right? So I wouldn't say that you, no one can predict the future, but you can predict how the future could change relative to what everyone else is expecting, right? So when you start from that baseline of, oh, everyone thinks X is going to happen. Well, what if something happens that they're not looking at what then occurs, right? And so that that's what's so fun about the game. I was trying to follow that pretty deeply there for a second. That was, that was a really interesting kind of, again, first principles type framing of like where you're thinking. And I think you, uh, you proved to us that if we wanted to scrap this whole podcast and do one just about <laughs> thinking in abstract terms and being a contrarian and investing in, in patterns and trends, it would have been a worthwhile conversation as well. Uh, that's one of those clips I'm going to re-listen to a fully, make sure I understand. Uh, but I want to go back to something that it was kind of an interesting connection that came up when you were talking about, you know, the world coming back to normal in some ways and not in others is just the parallel between a question I already had on my pad and the way you're explaining that really is something I wanted to ask about how COVID accelerated changes that were going to take 10 years into six months, uh, such as the transition to remote work, which was already happening, but was probably on the 10 year plan, not the six month plan until all of a sudden, like it got fast tracked. And you have this blog post on your website about like 22 reflection questions that you come back to. And one of them just followed that exact same framework. So I just wanted to bring it up was how can I compress my 10 year goals into six month goals? And I wanted to ask you why that question comes into your reflection habits, kind of some of the things that have happened in your life by asking that question. And if you think it's a productive question, because I think I've, to be honest, thought about that too much where it's almost put pressure on myself to like achieve 10 year level results in a six month time frame, which has almost led to counterproductive results. So what's been your experience and backstory with that question? Yeah. So I'll go, I'll go to two things with that. The first is COVID has accelerated 10 years of change of an exponentially increasing event, right? So I think Tim Urban has, has done the math on this of what it actually looks like where when you pull forward an exponentially increasing event by 10 years, the chart, people think, oh, you, you increased it linearly, but 10 years of exponential growth pulled forward, you can't grasp how much vertical y-axis there is on that graph. So we'll link to that because I think it's, it's very hard to visualize um, unless you see it, but it's one of the cooler things. It's like, whoa, that makes a ton of sense. And that's why I'm so fascinated with the internet right now is because of that pull forward. But anyway, that's more of a tangent. On the 10 years and six months, it's, it's a famous question from Peter Thiel. And I think first you need to operate 
like you said, you have to be thinking long-term to ask that question. Otherwise you're going to operate from, from a bad spot. So the way it can stress you out is if you're not already optimizing for those 10 year goals, that's where you need to start from, but you need to pull those forward and say, okay, I need to do these in six months because it's just a paradigm shift. It just shakes up everything that you think, right? If, if you have a 10 year goal to do X, Y, and Z, and you have to do it in six months, you have to think in extremes. And by no means should you act on any of them because they're probably not going to work, but just, it just creates this new node and way of thinking when you ask that question and spend some time like, Oh, if I want to start a billion dollar company and, and be the CEO in 10 years, what do I have to do in six months to do that? Well, I probably have to have some kind of absurd marketing campaign. And it just, it's a, it's a thought provoking and, and foundation shaking. Like another one of those questions in, in my, my post about my favorite reflection questions is what if I just did the opposite of everything that I'm currently doing? Right. And that would, you know, instead of waking up at 5am, I slept until 10 and stayed up till three. Like what would happen if I did that? How would my life change? And it's all about just, we get so stuck in our way of thinking and anything you can do on a reflection basis of getting yourself out of that habitual way of thinking, doing that every once in a while, I think is super, super important. Yeah. The mental model of inversion is, is super interesting. And I love wait, but why and Tim Urban and all of his visualizations. And uh, I've recently been sort of on a binge looking through all of his stuff and it's, you know, really shaping my my worldview especially the elon musk series and and lightning to be multi-planetary and there's, there's a lot to go into there but i want to talk about your time as a center uh, on the football team at princeton and in high school because i was a center growing up as a little kid and it is legitimately the most thankless job on the football team i mean it's it's like you only get you don't ever get praised you only get hated on and that's only when you mess up and it's like in the same way so this is sort of I'm, I'm gonna try to tie this together live here we'll see if it works but I think in the same way sort of inverted writing online is similar in that if you do it really well it'll be seen by a lot of people but if you don't do it well no one will see it at all so can you riff on that a little bit what do you think about that that's a very, very cool way of thinking about it. And it is a, as a center and as an offensive lineman, you, you hit the nail on the head is you do your job day in and day out and no one sees it until you do a horrible job. And so what that means is every play is life or death. And you, you know, if <laughs> you have this model of consistency, both of them come down to consistency right? Offensive linemen need to do their job consistently. So they don't, you know, they're not, their name's not in the paper, right? And writers need to do things consistently if they ever want their names in the paper, right? On the writing side, it's a huge advantage at the beginning of your writing career that no one reads anything you're doing, right? You get a free playground to explore all these different things. Granted, you want that feedback and you want to get it faster 
And so that's kind of what we preach is you do, otherwise you're just going to publish into the void and you don't want that, but you do want to take that time to kind of explore. And there's not that much pressure. One thing I like to say, there, there were some Sundays where I'd be stressing about writing my newsletter. I'm like, Oh, uh, to my 208 subscribers with a 48% open rate. Like if I don't get this out at 6 PM, I'm going to lose them all. And so my, you know, I had this realization and it was very comforting of there are zero people on planet earth who are looking at their inbox, waiting for your newsletter to hit. And so that was kind of a relaxing feeling of, okay, I can just hit send. And that's one of the principles of ship 30 for 30. It's like, you just got to ship it because like you said, no one, no one cares if it's not good they care if it's good. And if it's not good, they just stop reading it. And so it doesn't matter, right? All it's going to do is filter out the people that you want to be reading your stuff anyway. So that's a very interesting parallel that I, I kind of want to explore further because, right, they, that, that's a cool connection. If you really, really want to go crazy with it. Essay. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if, you, if you really want to get crazy with it and make it a, a triple weave, if you've also read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, one of the most I guess, memorable chapters in that book is how he talks about the habits of football teams uh, and like the importance of having very specific cues to have the habit loop to like inform how you play to ensure you don't make errors. And so that can be the third parallel between writing and being a football player is that the importance of having cemented habits is like the essential component to maintaining a perfect performance on the line or as a writer. Yeah. Talk about, talk about, personal avatars we're just we're hitting on everything <laughs> that, that makes me up right now i love it kyle had um, just uh shot me a message in the chat as you're explaining that saying omg i never sent out our newsletter last week uh <laughs> but for our podcast and i was saying to him kind of along the same uh or i was thinking in my head i didn't actually say it that along the same lines of what you were explaining i had that realization that's like no one on earth is like check because we don't especially since we haven't sent them consistently at the same time any week like some days it's wednesday 6 a.m some days it's wednesday like in the afternoon no one's like formed the habit of receiving it yet so we were trying to see if like anyone would notice that we didn't send it and then next week we just double up and potentially again like what if we did the opposite like now we might only have to write one every two weeks that just announces two episodes and just saved ourselves a headache that we learned from like letting small bad things happen so hmm. Yep. No, it's spot on. And it's a good, I think it goes beyond writing. I think no one, no one is looking at you as closely as you're looking at yourself. And that's something mm. we praise in ship 30 is no one cares about the essays you're writing because they care about the essays they're writing. And so stop, don't worry about, you know, Oh, this one's better. No one's looking at it. And that, I think that can go beyond that. That's just a good principle for life, right? Don't take yeah. yourself so damn seriously. No one really cares what you're doing. I, I learned that early on in, in um, like the eighth grade. There's a, a senior who was mad at me for something that I did. And I stayed up all night. My heart was racing. Like I was worried he was going to beat me up in the parking lot. And uh, the next day, it's like he doesn't even – he never thought about me last night. Like wh why would I spend this energy thinking about, about how I'm going to respond in all these different possible scenarios? And that really cemented me early on just how – little other people think about what you're doing and yep. i love that i think it's really freeing i think one of the biggest lessons that you and i have been trying to learn from the podcast and trying to teach from the podcast uh 
that's come from the podcast is the attribution fallacy. Like what you're saying about people maybe getting upset that they're not getting high engagement from other shippers in the ship 30 for 30 Slack is because everyone, myself included, right? Like everyone's trying to squeeze into their already busy lives an additional 45 minutes of like a really creative project. I've not read that many other people's stuff, not because I'm not interested and not because I know there aren't amazing people in the group. I'm distressed. <laughs> I just have stuff going on and that's where everyone else is. And that applies to writing online. It's people aren't saying your work's terrible. They're just not reading it because there's literally so much stuff online. And I think that that is one of the essential ego changes you have to overcome. No, it's not about you. Like these things that we take personally, people not replying to your invitations to come on the podcast. They're just busy. They didn't even read it. They read it. They opened it. Then their kid interrupted them and they never checked it again because there's not red receipts for messages. Like all these things kind of that we let upset us, shouldn't upset us if we actually just think in, in the broader context. That was kind of just yeah. a monologue. <laughs> no, amen. I think you're, it's exactly right. Uh, so one question I have for you, uh, this is something I kind of struggle with is, let, you, you brought this up earlier that when you're a writer and especially when you have the daily cadence, all of a sudden there's a pressure to come up with something moderately interesting to say every day. But I have a question for you about one, like what is it that you do purely for fun? Because uh, it kind of seems like we all have those like workaholic tendencies where it's like my projects are my fun, but it's like everyone else sees it as like, this is work, that's work, everything's work. Uh, so is there anything you do that you kind of try to keep sacred from your writing that is purely a fun activity? Uh, and if so, what is it? Or does everything kind of become anything you do as potential coal for like the furnace of daily publishing? It's a, my mom will say she won't, she would agree that I don't do enough things just for fun. <laughs> because everything kind of turns into, ooh, how could I share this? How could I? And that, I think it's an interesting pressure when you start to kind of build an audience to have like consistently put out thoughtful things. But I would say that writing for me does feel like a game and it feels like play. And I know it's cliche to, to say, but the reason I'm able to do it consistently is because it doesn't feel like work, right? The, the reason I'm able to work the full-time job I do and all the writing I do is because they're completely different ways of doing things, completely orthogonal patterns of thought. And both of them feel like games. And so like, it's so it's easy for me because I can work 16 hour days doing these things because they don't feel like work. Right. So I, I I'm lucky to say that I found things that where that is true because not everyone has that, but you know, I, I, I'm coming off kind of Gary Vaynerchuk-y with, with that of like, Oh, I love what I do so much. So I can do it forever. But I think it's true. Like when you find those things, it, you stop thinking like, Oh, what are my hobbies? Because your hobbies become the things that you really just do all the time and, and find a way to, to live with them. Yeah. I think Lewis probably shares a really similar, uh, a really similar story there. One question I wanted to ask is, it seems obvious, but I think it'll be interesting from your perspective. And that is, why is it important for these atomic essays to fit on one screenshot? Because no one has attention. No one has a high attention span. Or I, I saw a very good thread is no one has a very high consideration thread, where people have high attention spans because they can watch. 20 straight episodes of Netflix or listen to four hours of Joe Rogan, but they have short consideration spans, which is if you don't grab their attention in the first 10 seconds, they're going to keep going. 
right? So what's so fun about Atomic Essays is it's actually twofold. When you share them on Twitter, you your goal is first, it's like sending an email. You want to get them to click on your, your picture to read the essay, right? So you get a chance to learn copywriting and encourage, because the goal is get them to stop scrolling and click on your essay. So that's step one. So you get 30 days of copywriting, right? Because you're in a competition for attention with the rest of the feed, which is not the case on blogs or other things. And then fitting on one screenshot is because no one is on Twitter to read more than one page worth of text, right? So if it's, if it's any longer, people are saying, I'm out, right? So it needs to be, oh, this got my attention. I can get through this in a minute and a half. I'll read it, right? And so that that's why we stress that. And it's just kind of a aesthetic. I think it looks good. Mm-hmm. I think that distinction you drew there is something that so many people don't realize because that's almost become a pet peeve of mine is everyone says we have no attention span and the people we say have no attention span spend hours undistracted giving their sole attention to one thing, which is Netflix or like, it's just people have that framing of it. That might be my atomic essay consideration span. There we go. But I have a question for you. Uh, Kind of, I've been using this in the last couple of interviews now as the final question that is, You've had a, seems like a very successful two years being out of school. So a lot of that has to do with, I think you read Atomic Habits and let it, and let it change your life and did the execution work required to see that outcome. But if you could give one piece of advice to yourself, just graduating college based on the you know productive two years that you've had, what would that one piece of advice be? It's easy. It's look for the things you want to do, the, the skills you want to build, the habits you want to form the the impacts you want to have and then find a way to have some kind of public forcing function to learn those skills and build those habits right so my newsletter was i was reading and learning all these things and the notes i was taking would be half scribbled in you know the back of a notion page every week and so i wasn't really internalizing what i wanted to do Right. So I started a newsletter where the forcing function was to share and clarify those ideas. Right. So it was very easy to do. I started a newsletter within my company where I summarized the biggest financial market events of the week. And that was a forcing function for me to think clearer about the markets. I started this Ship 30 for 30 really came from I knew that there was no way I was going to write every day for 30 days without some kind of community or accountability, right? So I built that, right? So every piece of success I have had of building a skill or a business or learning something has been creating a system where it's inevitable that I build that skill. And so I call this just in time versus just in case where anything you want to do, if you're doing it of, oh, I'm gathering a bunch of books to learn more about this skill, just in case it serves me in the future, you're not going to learn it. It's like taking a college exam that is pass fail with no final, right? You're going to convince yourself that you're building that skill or learning that thing. But if you put, like you could read 10 books on copywriting or you could build a product and right when you need to write a landing page for that product, you do it. Right. So it's just in time learning versus just in case. And it goes back to, to building that forcing function. I really like that. And to go from looking back to looking forward and to ask you the last question, 
you know, we talked a little bit about how you can set 10 year goals and then look at how you could accomplish them in six months. But for you, what are some of your 10 year goals today? So my, my, I'll start with, I guess it's 20, 21 year goals right now, 22. So I'm going to bring an NBA team to Tampa by the time I'm 45. That's my X year goal. So whatever that comes out to, I'm 24 right now. So 21, I set that goal when I was 22 and a half. So directly, it was actually on my halfway to 45 birthday. I set that goal. And so that is kind of my North star. And I love telling people that because you get two reactions. You get kind of someone who says, hell yeah, that's awesome. Here's what you should do X, Y, Z. And you have some people that kind of laugh and you know, you don't, you want to spend less time around the people that laugh and more time about the people that get inspired by that. And so really 10 year goals are just kind of build towards that. And that means, I love that, you know, writing and everything that I think is foundational, continuing to learn, continuing to build relationships, all those, you know, that, that are going to get me there. I, so I don't have too clear of, of 10 year goals, but I know where I'm going. I know where I'm at and I know the next 12 weeks of goals, right? So that, that's really my feedback loops. I know where I'm at and I brutally accept whatever the truth is of where I'm at. I set quarterly goals for the next 12 weeks, sprint, get those done and then reevaluate. So that's, you know, well, I know Lewis and I would want to be minority owners in a, in a, um, in a sports team. So it hit us up and, and, and I guess, I don't know how old you are, 24, 20 years. So 2020, 2043, somewhere around there, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll be on that. I think 2043, the Tampa Bay wave. So on Ooh. or before then, Tampa Bay like wave, it. hashtag ride the wave. I, I got in. I don't want to speak clarity. to Lewis, but, you know, I think to wrap this up, like Tampa as a city is going to benefit a lot from the hype that Miami is getting in sort of the same way that I think that, Dallas is going to benefit really heavily from what's happening in Austin. And like, it's going to be a really interesting 20 years. I, I, I'd bet on you, man. So thank you very much for coming on and for sharing with us and chatting with us about 30 for 30 and, and your ideas and, um, you know, keep crushing it. Hey, thanks for having me guys. And I think what you guys are doing, I wish I would have started a podcast when I was in college and just you get a, a way to interact with people and, and learn from them. I think it's so cool what you guys are doing. So keep doing that as well. Thank Thanks you so man. much. Where would you want us to direct our listeners if they uh, want to read more Dickie Bush? So I spend way too much time uh, on Twitter and that's at Dickie Bush, D-I-C-K-I-E-B-U-S-H. Um, if you want to learn more about Ship 30 for 30, you can go to ship30for30.com. So I'm sure all these notes will be. And, and, mm. and if you want my weekly newsletter, it's dickybush.substack.com. So you can go there to, to learn how businesses, people, and systems improve. But I'm all over the internet, spend too much time there. So you can find me just about anywhere. Well, this has been a great time. Thank you so much for coming on with us. No problem, guys. And that wraps up our conversation with Dickie Bush. I really enjoyed this one. And I've got a few different takeaways that uh, I'm going to share with you all. So my first one was when he was talking about um, his big goal. Like, you know, we asked him, what do you want to be in, in 15 years? And he says, immediately without skipping a beat, I'm going to bring an NBA team to Tampa. And he sort of waited and, and watched what we did. And then he shared with us that when he shares that with people, he always waits to see the reaction in order to 
um, kind of gauge whether or not uh, he should spend more time with them. And I thought that was really funny. You know, if people laugh at that, then he's like, okay, well, I guess we're not going to spend much time together. Um, but you know, I, I believe in him. And I think that it's a really cool thing to have such a big goal out there in the future. Uh, the next is, you know, we asked him about life after COVID and he's built this really incredible system and routine for himself uh, in this time where, where solitude is kind of endorsed by uh, the macro things that we're all going through and what it's going to look like when he goes back to, to um, New York and kind of has to go out and, and be friends with people. And he says, um, you know, that's, that's the big question right now. And he, he is going to figure it out as that comes, but uh, that he wouldn't trade what he's gotten out of this period for anything. Um, and then the next, you know, one of the mental models I like to use, or maybe it's not a mental model, but, um, I really like thinking about cities as stocks and how, like, for example, you've got Austin and Dallas. And I think that with all the growth that Austin is having, like Austin's a growth stock and Dallas would be a value stock. And that a lot of the value that comes from Austin will flow to Dallas in the long term. And for the first time during this conversation, I kind of thought about Tampa in that same way um, with all the growth that's happening in Miami. I think that uh, a lot of the value that, that comes to, to Miami will eventually flow to Tampa and, and it'll be a really good thing for that city. Um, and then the next is, you know, we talk a lot about um, personal leverage on this podcast and, and personal leverage comes from habits and it's like, okay, well, the logical extreme of that is what habit has the highest personal leverage. And after talking to Dickie, I think, it's writing. I mean, and, and we talk about that pretty um, quickly in the interview. And I think I said like the power of the written word is really underestimated today. But, um, you know, I think that it'll only continue to be extremely powerful. It's like, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and then finally, um, the butterfly effect of, of ship 30 for 30 and, and what this is going to do for the people that participate in it, um, you know, for years to come. It's just like, you build this habit of shipping um, and it affects the people that read it. It affects the person that wrote it. And when you put that many nodes into a big network, like you can't help but affect so many people. Um, and that's like the same way of Taylor Pearson and, and Michael from the Python podcast. It's like Michael has helped people with the Python podcast and he only did that because of Taylor Pearson's book. So Taylor Pearson has thousands of people that he's affected in the same way. I think Dickey um, in the future will have affected thousands and thousands of lives through this, this online writing community. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. what do you think Lewis? Yeah, I didn't have the butterfly effect in my takeaways, but just want to reiterate. I mean, if he has every month foreseeably, if he runs this challenge for a whole year and he averages 200 people that are putting out 30 essays, that's like 600 essays. You know, there's a lot of sharing, what, and it's you're missing the second and third order of the consequences of the consequences. So if I write an essay telling people to you know not use their phones when on their own buses, so they look up and enjoy the world, and people read that and start doing that and start tell, like you know that's just viral spread of ideas, and he's setting that in motion with a bare minimum of like 600 essays a month that wouldn't have been written had he not created the challenge and come up with forcing functions and accountability. But I just want to start by saying that Dickie is really in an admirable position for like where I would like to see myself within a few years of graduating. He's running a profitable community. He's growing his following through his writing. And he's like we've said, inspiring and helping a lot of people. And I don't have the clearest picture. I don't have the, you know, bring an NBA team to Tampa by 2045 level of clarity about specific future goals. But I definitely have 
the desire to run a profitable com company that inspires and helps a lot of other people and is based on the fact that I write and think. So he was a really direct role model. And I'm glad that we now have a line of communication with him based on the fact that we put together this podcast. But on the point I was just saying about how at a bare minimum, because of the challenge and because people pay him between one and $200 to commit to publishing 30 essays within a month, he's holding them accountable, which was my first takeaway. I, I've kind of liked that we've asked in the past couple of interviews, the open-ended, if you just have one piece of parting advice, what would it be question? Because it's gives a good chance for what they view is one of their most important ideas that we didn't get to bring up. And so that question is really powerful because when people have something prepared for it, that means they've put a lot of thought and it's probably a piece of good advice. So Dickie's answer to that very last question was his one piece of advice would be forcing functions and public accountability. So we pretty much all know what it is that we need to do, right? None of us don't know what it would take to achieve the goals we set for ourselves, especially when it comes to side projects. So if I know for a fact, this is made up that I need to learn Spanish, but my job's not forcing me to do it. My friends aren't forcing me to do it. It's probably not going to happen because on bad days, you lose your enthusiasm for it. And then a couple of missed days in a row and you just eventually quit. So on the things that you know are important to you to get done, the most important thing is some commitment device, some level of telling a friend, if I don't do this, hold me accountable to pay, you know, donate charity, donate money to a charity that I hate, or like the opposing party's political campaign. You need to construct those systems if you want to get serious about making progress in areas that you are serious and making progress about. So that's what stuck out most to me. And that's why I spent a lot of time just explaining it. Uh, a couple other simpler takeaways. Uh, we asked about in the very beginning of the conversation, the importance of writing daily, not just writing online, not just writing often, but the daily publishing cadence. And I think the important takeaways there is kind of like the lean startup, but is writing is applied because it's about getting feedback as early as possible and with as little effort as possible. So you don't want to have to write 10,000 words about sobriety uh, to, to see if people resonate with that idea. You can put out a mini essay to Twitter, sub communities on Reddit, specific friends that you think would enjoy it. And if they don't like your short piece on it, it's good that you learned that without putting in the effort and it lets you test a lot more ideas and potentially have a lot more impact. Uh, so the framework he talks about is, you know, make a lot of noise and listen for the signal, which I think is really valuable and making your essays smaller and calling them atomic is really helpful for that. I like his morning routine, especially with silent outdoor exercise. I've been doing that a lot since we did this conversation. I'm not as disciplined as Dickie in the sense that I uh, do the same two hour exercise routine on the weekends as well. But on my weekdays, I've been enjoying waking up, either taking a light run, light bike ride, then doing my ship 30 for 30 riding. It's been a great rhythm, uh, heard a lot of peace. And like he was saying, if you hit 8 a.m. and you've already exercised for 30 minutes, already published a piece of content, already focused for an hour, like your day is just going to go really, really well. I like his recurring reflection questions. I'd encourage people to go on his website and look up his reflection questions. That's the article that inspired the question about how do I achieve my 10 year goals in the next six months? And there's a lot of other great questions on that article that I would re recommend checking out. And that's really uh, my other takeaway is just Dickie's a great writer. He's a great thinker. And I would encourage anyone who enjoyed this conversation to spend some time in afternoon, evening, weekend on his website, reading his work and uh, thinking about the things he encourages you to think about. So that is all I have to say for this conversation. As you can tell by the fact that Kyle and myself had especially long rambles about what we learned from it. We really got a lot out of it and we hope that you did as well. If you want to support the Lewis and Kyle show, give us feedback, anything like that. You can reach us by leaving a rating or review on Apple iTunes, letting us know what you thought about the show. You can also reach out to our social media accounts for the Lewis and Kyle show on 
Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We check those inboxes often enough where we will reply to you. Otherwise, uh, check out another episode in the feed. And we have a lot of great conversations, not just one with Dickie, but a lot of really great ones we've had in the past couple weeks. And I would encourage you to check those out. That is all we have for you in this episode and check back here in a week for the next one. Thanks so much.